This is Science by the Slice, a podcast from the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences Center for Public Issues Education. In this podcast, experts discuss the science of issues affecting our daily lives, reveal the motivations behind the decisions people make, and ultimately provide insight to solutions for our lives. Hello and welcome to Science by the Slice. This is your host, Philip Stokes, Education Coordinator at the Pi Center. This is our second episode of a three-part series on COVID-19, where we're breaking down the pandemic to help us understand how we got to this point. Before I go any further, I want to emphasize that this episode was recorded on December 11th, 2020. As we all know, the pandemic is changing very rapidly. So as you're listening today, keep in mind that our guest is providing information based on everything that was known up until that point. And my guest is Dr. Glenn Morris. He is a physician, epidemiologist, and has focused on infectious diseases his entire career, which led to him becoming the director of the Emerging Pathogens Institute at the University of Florida. More on this institute in just a moment, but first, I mentioned that Dr. Morris has focused on infectious diseases his entire career. But it's a bit more personal than just that. You see, Dr. Morris grew up in Bangkok, Thailand, the son of missionary parents. His father, a PhD theologian, taught Hebrew and Greek. His mother worked with refugee populations. And Dr. Morris witnessed firsthand epidemics of cholera, dengue, and other diseases that so often impact the tropics. These outbreaks were a risk to himself, his family, friends, and this experience growing up was a major driver for his career today. In fact, after completing his residency in 1979, he joined the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention as an epidemic intelligence officer where he dealt with cholera outbreaks at refugee camps in Thailand, something so closely linked to his upbringing. Fast forward to today, Dr. Morris and others at the University of Florida are trying to understand the emergence of pathogens just like the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Dr. Morris is also involved in the health and safety of agricultural workers in the Southeast, as he is the director of the Southeastern Coastal Center for Agricultural Health and Safety, one of 11 CDC NIOSH centers in the U.S. So in this episode, we also discuss how COVID-19 has impacted agricultural workers in Florida. Now, before I pick up my conversation with Dr. Morris, I should say that the Emerging Pathogens Institute was very quick to research COVID-19. The Institute had its own assay to test for COVID-19 very early on, weeks before tests were widely available. Researchers isolated the virus from the first case diagnosed at UF Health here in Gainesville and started working on studies that could lead to vaccines, treatment options, and just general information to help us understand more about the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So I'll pick up my conversation with Dr. Morris as he's discussing the different strains of coronaviruses around today and their prevalence. The the virus responsible for COVID, which is the SARS-CoV-2 virus, um, is uh, is a coronavirus. It's in in the coronavirus group. Coronaviruses are extremely common. Um, they tend to like bats, and uh, frequently they are isolated from bats. We've actually isolated coronaviruses from vat, bats here on the UF campus. 
we've got some bat houses and uh, those bats carry coronaviruses. Those are, let me emphasize that's it's not COVID, it's not any viruses that are gonna cause any harm to humans. Um, but um, coronaviruses are present in bats. Um, they are carried by all sorts of mammals. So, you know, the, the sense that this was something totally unexpected or unusual uh, needs to be a little tempered with the recognition that um, coronaviruses are common. They like mammals. They are frequently transmitted among mammals and um, they can cause serious illness in mammals. And that's been recognized for a long time. So when we come back to coronaviruses in humans, um, we are aware of at least four different strains of coronavirus, what we call the human endemic coronaviruses, which circulate widely in human populations. Um, these generally cause symptoms like the common cold. So when you get a cold, there's a reasonable likelihood that you are infected with a coronavirus, one of these human endemic coronaviruses. But then there are three coronaviruses which we have come to recognize can cause really nasty disease in people. One is called SARS, which appeared uh, in the, the early, in around 2000. And then there was MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, um, which still is present in the Middle East. Um, and then there is COVID. SARS, when it first appeared, was very serious with a high fatality rate um, and was of significant concern. But basically, the public health authorities jumped on it extremely rapidly. And it's gone away. We haven't seen any more SARS after the, the initial outbreak. Why did COVID have all the right stuff? Um, I can't totally tell you that. Um, that's one of the very interesting questions that uh, as a scientist and, and researcher, um, people, you know, I and a, a whole lot of other people all over the world are going to be looking at um, for quite some time. So it's a combination of having just the right combination of genes to be able to cause serious disease in humans combined with the right combination of, of, of genes so that it is able to be easily transmitted among humans. Again, the thing about both SARS and MERS was that we were able to control spread of both of those viruses fairly quickly. And we did not see the explosive transmission that we are seeing with COVID. So, you know, I don't want to say it's all luck, but I mean, microorganisms are constantly evolving. And again, that's what we do in the Emerging Pathogens Institute. We watch microorganisms evolve and try to understand what evolutionary pathways might take them in a direction where they could cause devastating human disease. And in this particular instance, you know, this is what we found was, again, we have a microorganism that happened to undergo the right evolutionary changes, um, that it was suddenly able to become a, a monster, as it were, and to be able to cause global pandemic disease. 
So that's really interesting because it sounds like there are certain factors that, you know, like you said, it's it's at the molecular level that we don't necessarily, we can't control. But then you also mentioned the fact that with SARS and MERS, public health officials kind of got on top of things early and restricted the spread. So now let's bring it back to COVID-19 and let's talk about spread in the Americas and in Florida, because of course that's where uh, we both are here in Gainesville, Florida. Um, Tell us a little bit about the case count in Florida and sort of what the drivers of that were, what, and maybe some of the things that were not done as well as they could have been to restrict the spread. Well, the, again, today is uh, December 11th. You know, I always put the date in because the numbers are changing so rapidly. Um, this is, right at the moment, this is not a good day, or at least last Tuesday was not a good day. We had 11,234 new cases in the state of Florida with a positivity rate, eight point, about a little over 8% of the uh, COVID tests that were done were, were positive. Um, those are definitely not good numbers. Um, and unfortunately, what we are seeing in Florida is a, a steady rise in the case numbers. Now, on the, on the good side of things, if there is a good side, um, we are not nearly as bad off as other states. Um, I mean, right at the moment, again, as of today, um, We are averaging across a seven-day moving average, 43 new cases per 100,000 population. Um, The uh, national number is 63 new cases per 100,000 population. So um, we are below what's going on in terms of of the nation as a whole. And actually, we rank 42nd nationally in terms of our level of acquisition of of new infections. I will say, however, that 43 cases per 100,000 population is a god-awful number. It's just that everybody else's numbers are god-awful as well and are worse than ours. Um, Why right at this moment? Well, there's sort of two questions. Why are our numbers increasing? And why are they not increasing as rapidly as we're seeing in other states? Uh, they are increasing because um, we have not been able to implement um, basic control strategies um, for limiting transmission. And again, the thing about science is that you know we're constantly learning and, and refining where we are. And at this point, we've got a reasonable idea of how we can slow this virus down. Um, and again, to re- repeat things that have been said so many times that nobody listens anymore, um, wearing a mask does slow it down. Um, we know that it's transmitted by aerosols as well as by large droplets. So do physical distancing. Um, but the aerosols are, are important and aerosols are little tiny particles uh, that include viruses that can drift and float in the air for extended periods of time, multiple hours, forming what we call a toxic cloud. Um, now, you can't see them, but if you're in a closed, tight room, 
and a toxic cloud forms and you start breathing that toxic cloud in, you can get infected. That's how we have instances where one individual can infect hundreds of others, what we call a super spreader event. Essentially, all it takes is one guy in a bar, you know, talking loudly or singing loudly with no mask, excreting the virus in little tiny aerosol particles, which form a toxic cloud, and then everybody else in the bar gets infected. So that gets back to the idea of stay out of closed, tight spaces. So we, we know some of the things we need to do, but we then get down into issues with political will. Um, and again, this unfortunately has gotten into politics. And so rather than it being a discussion of the science, it becomes a discussion of the politics and people, um, depending on their political leanings, will decide that, well, no, I don't believe any of this stuff. And so I'm not going to wear a mask and I'm going to go to the bars and I'm going to go to the restaurants, pack them in close. Um, and so we are seeing increases. And I will say from a scientific standpoint, uh, I and others are not surprised that we are seeing increases because we are not putting in place interventions, mitigations to try to slow spread. Having said that, we are not seeing the same rapid transmission that we are seeing in other states. And I, I think there's, at least within the scientific community, there, there is a general consensus that it again relates to getting lots of people together in small closed spaces. And when it gets cold, particularly in the Northeast or in the Dakotas or really anywhere in the northern part of the country, people don't stay outside with the windows open. Um, everybody gets into, into closed, tighter spaces. And again, that's been happening to a degree in Florida, but probably not to the same degree that we're seeing in the northern states. You know, there is still the Florida lifestyle. If you're in the southern part of Florida, um, you know, you're not, you're, you're going to be in an in and out of doors type situation. There may be fewer opportunities for the really tight closed spaces. Um, we don't have strong data on that, but at least given what we know about transmission, you know, it would appear that at least here in Florida, yes, transmission is definitely continuing to occur at levels which are much higher than I would like to see but we may not be quite as bad off as people in the North in part because we don't have the cold driving us inside um, to, uh, to further increase the risk that transmission is going to occur. Now I do want to transition a little bit to the agricultural industry. I want to talk a little bit more about the prevalence of COVID-19 in agriculture. These are agricultural workers, um, a lot of which in the state of Florida, of course, are migrant workers. These are essential workers. These are maybe some of the most essential workers. Um, and so they have been, you know, during the growing seasons, they've been out, you know, picking fruits and vegetables. Where, What has been the prevalence of COVID-19 in the agricultural industry in Florida and in the Southeast? Excellent question. And unfortunately, I can't answer it um, because this gets back to issues with testing. Um, there have been, as you are probably aware, significant issues with having available adequate testing um, within the 
the, the nation and within the state of Florida. And uh, we are doing better on our testing. But without testing, we don't know how many cases are out there. And what we have found is that even though the state has made um, really clear efforts to make testing available, including sort of drive-through testing centers, walk-up testing centers, um, the agricultural worker community has not really wanted to get tested. We actually have been in situations where we have offered testing to you know, groups of agricultural working, workers and they have indicated, you know, I don't want to be tested because if they get tested then and they're positive, then they have the potential for being out of work for up to two weeks. And for many of these workers, um, they are paid on a daily or, you know, product basis. And being out of work for up to two weeks can be absolutely devastating. And so consequently, I don't think we've got a good feel for the total extent of COVID. There are certain outbreaks which have occurred, which have suggested that it is a significant problem. And just to name one, which uh, in which we were involved in the investigation and which was uh, reported in the Gainesville Sun, um, we were uh, there was a, a group of uh, over a hundred H2A workers that developed symptoms. Um, and, um, anyway, they, we tested them. It ended up that 91% were, were positive for COVID. Um, again, these are guys working out in the fields, harvesting. Um, so being out in the fields is probably not the risk factor, but the problem is they're H2A workers and consequently, um, their employer contractor um, is responsible for their transportation and their housing. And in this case, um, they were being transported in a couple of uh, old um, school buses that were packed with people. Um, and they were staying in motel rooms, uh, sometimes six to eight to 10 people per room. And so, you know, transmission within those settings is not only, you know, reasonable, but expected. Um, when you've got 10 people sharing a, a bedroom and one person is sick, then everybody else in the bedroom is going to be sick um, right away. And same when everybody's crowded onto an old school bus, um, you're going to get very rapid transmission. And at least in this group of H2A workers, what we saw was evidence that there was indeed rapid transmission, what we call super spreader events, where, again, 91% were, were positive um, for COVID. So what this has done is make us really focus on the importance of trying to provide adequate housing and providing appropriate transportation for these individuals providing masking, you know, for the transportation. The problem is in housing, you, you, you really can't wear a mask while you're sleeping. And so, you know, what this does is raise a, a series of questions about how we can best protect um, our labor population, our agricultural population. And again, H-2A workers constitute approximately 10% of 
the agricultural workforce in the United States. You said something at the beginning. You said when testing, even when testing was available, the workers didn't necessarily want to be tested. And so I want to transition from that to vaccines because maybe you know where I'm going. If a vaccine is available, will they necessarily want to get a vaccine? So before we get into that question, because I uh, I want to just kind of hear from you sort of where we are on vaccine development, um, because I think education on vaccines is probably pretty crucial. At a global level, there are a large number of vaccines which are currently in various stages of testing. And uh, and I have, don't have the number in front of me, but it is, you know, in the 40s to 50s to 60s, um, different vaccines being produced by a number of different countries. Um, unfortunately, the United States elected to go in its own direction. It created the, the Warp Speed uh, Group and withdrew from WHO. And so the rest of the world is working collaboratively on vaccine production with the exception of the United States, which has decided to go it alone. Um, now, again, I ultimately, hopefully there will be sharing back and forth. Uh, and this gets into another whole series of issues, which you know we probably don't have time to get into in terms of our approach to international global health and the, the way we approach a pandemic. But nonetheless, the fact remains, in this country, you know, our warp speed group um, basically identified six um, vaccines that were felt to have, you know, high potential for success, and um, has been providing support for development of those vaccines, or at least for five of those vaccines. The, the sixth one, which was developed by Pfizer, Pfizer elected not to accept uh, government aid. Um, the vaccines fall into three basic groups in terms of mechanisms. Um, one mechanism is what we call the mRNA approach. Um, that is the approach that was used for the Pfizer vaccine, which is now moving into, uh, you know, it's starting to be administered. Uh, first people got the shots a couple of days ago in England uh, or in uh, Great Britain. Um, and uh, then there is a second MRI vaccine being put out by Moderna, which should fairly shortly be also coming into, you know, broad population-based use. There are two vaccines that take advantage of what we call, you know, an adenovirus vector, where the critical uh, parts of the SARS-CoV-2 virus uh, to which one wants to elicit immunity are are carried by a by another virus uh, that infect that gets in you know that gets into people and then uh, causes that particular those particular uh, areas to be proteins to be expressed and then finally there are two vaccines that are if you what might be called more classic approaches which specific proteins of the virus have been identified and are being administered just the individual proteins together with what we call an adjuvant, which elicits uh, further immunologic responses. And as I said, that's the way vaccines traditionally have been made. And we have two candidates in, in that realm. 
At this point, neither of those candidates have moved into human trials. For the adenovirus, one has moved into human into human trials, and we have data there. Um, the efficacy does not look quite as good as what we are seeing with the, the mRNA vaccines. So at least for now, uh, all the action is with the mRNA vaccines. Um, and again, it, it appears to be a good vaccine. Um, there are issues, there are logistics issues with it, and that it has to be kept, at least the Pfizer vaccine, very, very, very cold uh, until shortly before it's administered. And so, you know, we are sort of shifting away from the vaccine discovery business and more into the vaccine logistics business. What I anticipate is that over the next, you know, three to six months, there will be a series of vaccines that come online. Um, and the Pfizer vaccine is going to be very expensive and very difficult to handle logistically. Um, I, you know, it's very difficult to predict the future, but my bet is that probably some of these other vaccines, including one or more of the myriad of vaccines being produced by other countries, uh, may well emerge as the, the most frequently used simply because of price considerations and logistic considerations. So again, we are shifting from the vaccine development phase into the um, logistic and, you know, defining which vaccines can be most effectively distributed to the largest number of people. So one, one question I do want to ask. So of the, the vaccines we're talking about that are will be available or potentially available in the United States, it sounds like none of them are the live attenuated viruses, right? The, the live weakened viruses. Um, is that correct? Well, the adenovirus vaccines are a, you know, potentially alive attenuated, um, but that's the adenovirus. The, no, we, there, we have no virus that is the live attenuated SARS-CoV-2. Right. And, and I, I say that um, because, you know, there would be no risk of someone becoming infected with um, coronavirus by getting the vaccine um, is that's correct, right? That's correct. All of these vaccines that are being considered in the United States uh, involve only parts of the SARS-CoV virus. Specifically, all of them tend to focus on one single part of it. And if you've seen, you know, all the pictures of coronaviruses that have, that are around, it's what we call the spike protein. You know, those little spikes that come mm -hmm. off you know, mm -hmm. the, the internal ball of the virus. And that spike protein is what seems to elicit the major immune response. And so consequently, what is the, the thing that all of these vaccines are focused on is that spike protein. That by itself, again, clearly, absolutely, you know, is not an intact virus and cannot cause disease. So getting the vaccine will not in any way raise the risk that one can get COVID. What kind of protection do you foresee that giving people that, that do get the vaccine? And, and how does that change maybe their behaviors or their life after they get the vaccine? Well, again, the, the data suggests that to start getting population-wide immunity, where we begin to see 
significant drops in the occurrence of illness. We're going to need to immunize, and again, these calculations take into, into account, um, you know, the number of people who've already gotten the illness, um, plus... So uh, if, if you don't mind, and I, I'm sorry to cut you off, yeah. but you're, you mentioned people who have already gotten the illness. So do those people also need to be vaccinated as well? What kind of protection do they have? Because um, there might be a, a fair number of people listening saying, hey, I already, I was already infected with COVID-19, you know, I already had that disease. Um, do I need to get the vaccine? So sorry to, no, to no, cut you I, off And that's an excellent question. What I was going to say is what we, we need to, we're probably going to need to immunize anywhere from about 40% to 70% of the U.S. population to really get a handle on things, slow this down, and cut it back to a level where we are not seeing the horrendous outbreaks that are occurring today. Um, if people have already been infected, um, you know, it's it will not hurt to take the vaccine. Um, is it absolutely necessary? Well, they probably have a degree of protection from the, from the immunity to the illness. Um, we don't know how long that protection lasts. Getting a dose of vaccine would boost that level of immunity. Um, and I, I think we'll probably reach the day where getting a coronavirus vaccine is something that one does routinely. Um, and uh, again, we're still not sure how long protection is going to last. But, you know, if I were to bet, based on our understanding of the uh, immune response to the to the human endemic coronaviruses that just cause the common cold. And keep in mind, you get a cold every year. So if you're infected one year, you're not necessarily protected the next year. We, we may well need to be immunizing everybody annually, um, similar to what we see with influenza. So, you know, when you go to your doctor's office, uh, he or she may well say, okay, time for your flu shot and your coronavirus shot. But again, that's, it's hard to say for sure. We're way too early in the process to predict. But nonetheless, I think we are moving into a situation. I mean, this is not going to be like measles or some of the other childhood vaccines where you get the vaccine once or maybe once or twice, and then you're protected the rest of your life. The odds are we're going to be, all of us, becoming very familiar with coronavirus vaccines. Um, really for the rest of our lives. So is that because there could be different strains of this virus or is it just the, uh, the waning of immunity over time or is it both? Um, it's probably more the waning over time. Um, we, uh, when we look at actually some of the, some very nice work uh, done by Dr. Derek Cummings here at UF has looked at, persistence of immunity to the human endemic coronaviruses. And again, it appears that the immunity just simply wanes over time and doesn't last more than a year or two. Now, we have no idea what's going to go on with SARS-CoV-2. We do know that when we look at the presence of antibodies in patients who have been infected with SARS-CoV-2, 
we find that we do start seeing a drop off in the presence of antibodies um, starting at three months, going on through six months. The problem is the disease hasn't been around long enough for us to know what's going to happen at nine months, 12 months, two years, three years, five years. But we are seeing definite evidence of a drop off in antibodies, in available antibodies in patients who have been infected. Um, the question then is, will we see the same drop off after vaccination? We have no idea. Um, and so at this point, it's simply too early in time to predict exactly what's happening. So going back to the agricultural industry and, you know, the need for everyone, um, you know, to get the vaccine, to, you know, have some immunity, some herd immunity. Um, what is it, what's important for those agricultural leaders in the state of Florida and in the Southeast and elsewhere to know about the vaccine and, and the importance of, of people getting it um, and, and what they should know about, you know, their workers getting it as well? Yeah, well, I, I think the starting point is the point you've already, you just made is that um, to maintain herd immunity, to keep the virus from spreading within our population, there needs to be a high level of vaccination. Um, and so, you know, just like with measles, for example, when we saw people stop getting their kids immunized for measles, all of a sudden we started seizing measles outbreaks. The same thing will happen with coronavirus. Not only do we have to reach a certain level of vaccination, we have to maintain a certain level of vaccination. And if we have certain populations, such as agricultural workers, who are not immunized, um, then there is the possibility that they could serve as a basis for transmitting the virus um, and be a source of continual outbreaks um, within other portions of the population. And so consequently, it is very important that we get a reasonable level of vaccination within all components of our population. And again, I, I think one of the things that is of concern is that um, for some of the agricultural population, agricultural worker group, um, there are anxieties about the vaccine. Many, um, for many, English is not, is not their, their first language. Um, there often is a lack of strong scientific background. And there is frequently a distrust of, of science and of doctors and um, of their labor contractors. Um, and so under those circumstances, I think that, and in fact, one of the things that we've been working with with the Extension Service here at UF is to begin to develop programs that can provide appropriate education uh, and reassurance that taking a vaccine is safe. Um, it's important um, both to protect the individual who gets vaccinated, but also to protect society as a whole. So, you know, somebody could say, ah, well, I'm going to take the chance. You know, I may not get bad symptoms, so I'm just not going to get vaccinated because you don't trust the vaccine. Probably not a good idea because while you may be willing to take the risk for yourself individually, um, if we don't get a high enough percentage of people vaccinated, 
we will continue to see ongoing outbreaks. Um, and so we really need to maintain that overall level of vaccination. So it's both to protect the individual, but also to protect the community. And, and I think to get across these ideas and to provide reassurance that this is a safe and effective means of accomplishing those goals is going to require ongoing education, uh, both you know, in the rural areas of the state, as well as within specific worker populations. You know, it, that's exactly kind of where I was going and what I was thinking, just how important credible and um, accurate education and, and information, I should say, um, getting that information out to, to the entire population. But of course, uh, specifically those that might not have the level of access to information that, that others do. So I think it just, it's one of those social variables, um, even a political variable that um, impacts infectious diseases and, and pandemics, um, just keeping, you know, the role of education um, and the role that leaders and communities can have in, in helping out uh, those in their community. And so, and, and I wanted and to I, go ahead. I would, I would strongly emphasize the importance of this. And, and in fact, I would say at this point in time, if I had to prioritize my concerns and, you know, where I think we need to be putting effort, um, I think a key element is in beginning to set the stage for vaccines coming in. And, you know, you're not going to be able to walk into a community and say, hey, we're vaccinating day after tomorrow. Let's do it. Um, it's going to take weeks, if not months, of education, you know, culturally appropriate education and ongoing efforts working with, you know, community leaders, um, thought leaders within various populations to be able to get people ready for vaccine and move them to a point where they are generally accepting not only of this vaccine, but vaccines in general, but specifically this vaccine. Um, and I, as I said, we started working with extension. I mean, we are probably months away from the point where we would actually be at a point where there was vaccine to start distributing into agricultural worker populations. But if we don't start now, setting the stage, providing the education uh, in a culturally appropriate way, then we will fail when we hit the point where we want to start vaccination. So I have, I have one last question, but before we get there, um, you mentioned earlier, it's December 11th, um, 2020. When do you think, based on your best predictive um, ability, uh, when do you think the vaccine will be readily available to distribute? Oh, Lord. Um, as I think I mentioned earlier, a key element right now I mean, we've shifted from a vaccine development to a vaccine logistics era. And I think many of us who are involved with this are starting to become very concerned about the logistic situation. And in fact, President-elect Biden, what's commenting along these same lines was that as, you know, the 
folks began to look at the plans in place, it is not clear that we as a nation or we as a state are completely ready to move into a program where we are really legitimately going to try to vaccinate 40 to 70% of our population. The logistics are daunting. And, you know, I, I think we're going to run into a situation where the vaccine availability is going to outrun the logistics to distribute that vaccine. The vaccine availability at the factory door is going to outweigh the logistic ability to get that vaccine equitably distributed um, to people in Florida and to other parts of the country. I mean, you know, people are saying, well, it's going to be spring. Um, Biden is talking about, you know, within 100 days of his inauguration, it should be widespread. I hope he's right. Um, I've just seen issues, however, with mass vaccination campaigns in other countries. And it's been an awful long time since here in the United States, we had a mass vaccination campaign. You have to go back to the polio days. Um, and so we're, we are less experienced with this than a lot of other countries. And uh, particularly with vaccines such as the Pfizer vaccine, which is extremely difficult to deal with logistically because of its requirements for being kept at minus 80 degrees. I think, um, you know, we are probably going to be late spring into the summer. I hope I'm wrong. I'm hope, I hope it's a lot sooner. Um, but it's, I'm betting late spring, early summer before there is widespread vaccine availability. You know, that's a really interesting point you just made, and, and I hadn't thought of it, that the U.S. hasn't had a vaccine campaign, I believe that's the term you used, um, or distribution efforts in a long time. Polio, you know, polio, when I think of polio, it, it, I think of, um, you know, history books. And, it, you know, as a reminder, what what year was was that when polio was, the vaccine was coming out? Oh my, I'd have to look it up. But it was a long time ago. It was in the early 50s, early okay. to mid 50s. But, you know, you think of other, maybe what you would call like a developing nation, have have had other vaccine uh, distribution efforts. I guess one of the the more recent ones uh, was Ebola. I guess right, um, and in parts of Western Africa. Um, but yeah, you're right. We haven't had that, so it's going to be a little bit of of uncharted territory, or just kind of, I don't know. It it'll be new newish for us. Yes. So the last question um, I just wanted to kind of wrap up with is kind of getting that big picture view, kind of relating back to, you know, your your role of what you do and what other researchers at EPI of the Emerging Pathogens Institute do of, you know, looking at some of these complex infectious diseases that affect our entire globe. Outlook look going forward for future pandemics or just other infectious diseases. I, I mean, again, I, I think what you hear people say periodically is, and, and, you know, this is getting us ready for the next one. And everybody kind of chuckles and yeah, sure. But the reality is um, this is getting us ready for the next one in the sense that I think with the, what has been a, some really science, major scientific marvels in terms of our ability to rapidly develop vaccines 
uh, once we get the vaccines distributed, uh, I think we will have, again, I think coronavirus will develop into an endemic disease. Um, we will continue, it will continue to be a risk, but I think we will be able to control it with vaccination long-term. Um, but, you know, coronavirus made the headlines, but China has had several outbreaks of um, other viruses, particularly flu viruses, where there was transmission of avian flu strains into human populations with high mortality rates. In each case, it was possible to get things under control and the virus appeared to lack some critical genetic elements, which allowed it to be rapidly transmitted. Um, and then there are things like Ebola. I, I mean, again, this is what I spend my life doing is monitoring these little blips that occur. And most of these little blips just go away. But as the coronavirus, as COVID has shown us, um, every now and then something comes along that has just the right combination of genes and manages to sneak out from under initial control efforts. And again, what we have learned from coronavirus is that rapid, extensive global transmission is quite possible and that our societies are not well positioned to prevent rapid spread of respiratory viruses. And so do I think there's going to be another pandemic again soon? No, hopefully not. Uh, let's get this one under control. But there are viruses out there that worry me. And um, I think that we have to, again, not only say we want to get this under control, but recognize that we need to be ready for the next one. And again, what has been interesting is that um, countries in the Far East, South Korea, Taiwan, um, even Australia, um, New Zealand, have been, and, and China, um, have been very effective in controlling COVID. And one reason everybody points out is that they all got scared with SARS. When they saw SARS, it made them put in place appropriate public health interventions so that when um, SARS-CoV-2 came along, they were ready and they jumped on it. And consequently, the impact of SARS-CoV-2 on these countries has been minimized. Um, in contrast, we were not ready. And um, the thing took off like lightning as it did in most of Europe. So one would hope that this would serve as a warning and that just as SARS may have gotten places in Asia to be ready for SARS-CoV-2, perhaps SARS-CoV-2 will generate um, sufficient support to develop the type of public health infrastructure in this country that will allow us to withstand the next onslaught. I want to thank Dr. Glenn Morris for being a guest on Science by the Slice. 
Be sure to listen to our final episode in our COVID-19 series. I'll be joined by Dr. Lori Baker and Dr. Shelley Rampold, both from the Pi Center. In this episode, we'll take a turn towards the social sciences and learn more about what U.S. citizens think about the pandemic. I'm pretty excited to have them share this research because this is one of the things we do at the Pi Center, gauge the public's beliefs and understandings about issues. I want to thank my coworkers at the Pi Center for working on this podcast with me, Ricky Telg, Michaela Kanzer, Sydney Honeycutt, Ashley McLeod-Morin, Elena Poulin, and Valentina Castano. I'm Philip Stokes. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, and we hope you'll join us next time on Science by the Slice.